this is something really exciting. And he says, no, it's, it's not sufficient. It doesn't measure up to the greatness, the excellency of Jesus Christ. And so he's getting ready to wrap up this section. Because in chapter 11, he's kind of concluded that case. He's, you know, in chapter 10, he's going to conclude that. This is kind of the pinnacle moment of telling us Christ is better. And then in the end of chapter 10 and chapter 11, chapter 12, he's moving into, so what? Okay, we, we've talked so much about the fact that Christ is better, so it requires that you and I do something. But in our passage this morning, what he's doing is he's comparing the old sacrificial system with the new ministry of Jesus Christ. And as he compares and contrasts the two, he's going to come out with a resounding declaration that once again, Jesus Christ is better. Why? Because Jesus Christ's ministry to your needs and Jesus Christ's ministry to my needs is far superior than anybody else could have ever provided. If you would, let's read Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read verse 1 all the way through verse 28. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pots that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. On these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part of the high priest, into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason... He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
For where there is a testimony, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every aspect to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the ark, both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the, bl the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that we should offer himself, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation father we do thank you for your great ministry on our behalf we thank you that you chose to come and you chose to die to pay the penalty for our sins to pay for our redemption we thank you that you now intercede for us and we thank you that you will one day return to the world and that you will rescue us back up to you. We pray that these truths would encourage us and we would be able to use these effectively to encourage and to challenge others and the faith that we have. In your name we pray. Amen. He begins, and as he begins in chapter 9, he's just telling us about this old sacrificial system. And the big idea, I think, of chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 is that the sacrificial system was insufficient for even one. He, he begins, and he's not trying to say that the sacrificial system was, was bad. He's not saying that it was an evil thing. He's just saying it wasn't sufficient. There's something greater. And so when you look at the words that he uses to describe it, you almost think at the beginning here that he's like getting ready to be like, isn't this great? Maybe we should go back to this. It's like he's really excited about this old sacrificial system. Look at the words that he uses to describe it. Even in verse 1, you begin to see signs that this is something that the author of Hebrews looks at and he's like excited about. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service. How, what kind of service? Service that was divine. That's not something that we look at and we go, you know, you're offering divine service. How bad of you? Right? That's what we want everybody at church to be doing in some way or another. It's going to look different for all of everybody. But we, we want us to be offering divine service. And he says that's what it did. It offered divine service and the earthly sanctuary. And then he goes on and he describes all the various components 
And what he's getting at is that this first covenant secured obedience and service, but not to the best degree, not to the full degree, because it couldn't. He goes on and he tells us that the tabernacle was prepared, and there's this constant service. Every day they had to go in and offer up the stuff for the showbread, and they had to lay, light the lamps. And there, so there's this constant service, this picture of this relationship that God had with the nation of Israel. And he's not saying that's bad. That's not a bad thing. To have this picture, this reminder that there is a relationship, a special relationship between the nation of Israel and God. He goes on and he tells us about the ornate um, otherness of this, this place. He tells us in verse 3, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which has the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenants, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in details. It's like this is beautiful, it's ornate, it's glorious. It reflects the majesty and the glory of our God. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that this is a bad thing. He's saying that in comparison to Jesus Christ, it all fades. Because the ministry that was accomplished in this room just doesn't measure up to the ministry of Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 10 now, he's going to tell us about the ministry that happened in this glorious tabernacle. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, most of us have kind of boring jobs when we think about, you know, working around that much gold, right? Right? I mean, I don't have that much gold in here, okay? I mean, and you guys don't have that much gold when you go to work. Well, maybe Carol does, but um, the rest of us, we have really kind of, you know, unshiny jobs. But what, what, what took place in this place? Verse 6. Now these things had been thus prepared. The priests... Always, Do you get the monotony there? Like it's never completed. Their ministry was never done. They could never suffice God's demand of holiness. And so the point isn't to tell us exactly what they did. We can, you know, dive into that. But verse 5 says, we don't have time for all the details. The point isn't that. The point is... They're constantly doing this. They're constantly going to the temple and, and, and doing the ministry, offering the showbread and lighting the lights and on and on and on, performing the services. But it's the second part. The high priest went only once a year and not without blood. But then notice who he offers the blood for. This is why I say the blood was not sufficient for even one. It wasn't even sufficient for the high priest himself. Because every year he had to go and he offered, had to offer blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. There's this constant annual sacrifice that's a reminder of the Lord's ministry. The old system temporarily appeased the conscience. He goes on in verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicated that, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest 
while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was a, it was a symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the services perfect in regard to the conscience. Once again, what is he repeating? It's that idea that the sacrificial system was insufficient for even one. It's not that it wasn't great. It's not that it wasn't beautiful. It's not that it wasn't glorious. It's not that it didn't accomplish the purpose with which it was intended at that time. It's that in comparison to what has now come, it fades. It's nothing. Concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. What he's getting at is, this was really, really cool. It was beautiful. It was done in a respectful way. When you consider how the other, other religious groups of the time that this is being described would have conducted their religious ceremonies with complete disregard for any understanding of a higher authority who is holy and righteous and just. This was beautiful. But it was constant, it was perpetual, it was monotonous, and it wasn't sufficient. But he doesn't stop there. Now, in verse 11 through verse 28, what he says is Christ's ministry is sufficient for all. And so in verse 11, you're introduced to the first appearance of Jesus Christ. And now, all these appearances, there's three appearances that we're going to see. And in each one of these appearances, it's like Jesus is being described as doing some other great ministry for you. And it's really, really interesting. It's not portrayed with the same monotony, the same insufficiency that verses 1 through 10 are described as. And yet, I mean... The author of Hebrews could have taken us and, you know, described for us aspects of Revelation 5 and 6 and, you know, portrayed for us the beauty of the throne room that, that God is now sitting at. And he could have described all the, the, the splendor of it. And yet his goal isn't to describe the splendor of the room. His goal is to, to explain to us the difference of the ministry of the old high priests and our new high priest, Jesus Christ. And so he's comparing those high priests and what they can accomplish and their ministry, and now he's saying look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Isn't this so much better? First ministry is that Christ is the sufficient sacrifice. Christ is the sufficient sacrifice. Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and cows, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You see the drastic contrast between what we just saw under the old system, how it was always occurring, and it was never sufficient, even for the one who offered it. He had to next year offer once again a new, 
bull for his own sins and a new goat for the sins of the people. It was never over. It was never complete. And yet here Christ came to offer his own blood for our redemption. Why do you and I need redemption? It's because you and I are sinners that we have sinned against a holy, righteous God. And because your sin and my sin separates us from God, we need something that can reconcile our relationship with God. We need something that can pay the penalty for our sin. And God the Father looked upon your condition, he looked upon my condition, and he said, there is no way David will be ever able to pay that penalty. There is no way you will ever be able to pay that penalty. And so instead of having constant offerings of goats and rams and sheep and everything else, I'm going to send my son to live a perfect, sinless life and then he'll go to the cross. He'll die for your sins and my sins. And the people who are afar off can be brought near. And they can be brought into relationship with me. And that is what the verse is describing. That the Christ, Jesus Christ, has provided us with our redemption. It is a better ministry than the old system could ever provide. He moves on, and as he moves on, he's going to continue to describe that same ministry and the implications and results of that ministry. That Christ has paid the penalty for your sins and for my sins. He goes on. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sacrifices, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's beginning, you see, in this verse, to point us towards application, isn't he? You see evidence that there is a response that you and I have to have to this truth. Christ has served as our sufficient Sacrifice. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And as the author of Hebrews contemplates that truth, he says, now your conscience has been cleaned, and you don't no longer have to serve with dead works that serve no purpose, that do not accomplish God's desire. He says, now you and I can serve in a meaningful way, advancing God's desired mission for each of us. And so it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to be constantly looking for ways in which we can meaningfully engage in ministry to one another, good works to one another. Good works to our neighbors. Good works to our employees. Good works to our co-workers, to our bosses. Good works within our, our family circles, ministering to and caring for the needs that we see each other having. That is what he's describing here. He says, this truth that Christ has now redeemed you. He hasn't redeemed you just so you can go and live however you want. Go live a wanton life and just live it up. That's not the idea. He says, the ministry of Christ is sufficient. Your sins penalty is paid for. Live different. 
live righteously. And so Christ's sacrifice is more effectual in securing a clean conscience. You'll notice that in verse 9, he talks about the conscience under the old system. And then in verse verse 14, he talks about the conscience under the new system. Verse 14 says, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. But in verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And you see, the ministry of Christ is better. Is not needed perpetually, and the result of it should result in good works. He moves on and he says, Christ's sacrifice provides eternal life then for all. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal Then he moves on and he, he describes a will. And that's that's explaining to us the importance of him actually dying. Okay? It is important that Christ actually die. You might say, well, why is it important that Christ die? Well, that's what the author of Hebrews is going to address in verse 16 through verse 22. He says, a will requires a, de- a death, to be, uh, death to be initiated. So, uh, my parents have a will. I've even heard the will read. I am uh, the executor of my parents' will. Right? But, if I were to take that will and try to execute the contents of that will and divvy up my parents' stuff while my parents are living at my house, um, we'd have lots of problems. My dad would probably have commentary. My mom would probably have commentary. My sisters would probably have commentary. And most importantly, the law would have commentary on my actions. Right? And what he's saying is, we're under a new covenant. The old system, it worked for the time being. But now we have a new system, and it's been instituted by the blood of Jesus Christ. For where there is a testament, that is a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Right? That's how we typically think of this. If I'm trying to execute my parents' will before they die, there's going to be all sorts of complications for my life. And that's what he's saying here. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so this is Christ's ministry. In verse 23, he's going to now begin to transfer, and he's going to move into the second appearance of Christ. 
this first appearance of Christ is an appearance of Christ on the earth with people like you and I. An account of which we read in Luke 24. That is why Christ came. He came, he died to institute this new reign. And he's risen again. And now these next two appearances of Christ in our text do not have Christ dead and buried in a grave some far distant land from us. Rather, Christ is living and active on your account and on my account. The text doesn't actually use the word resurrection or risen or anything like that. But the text assumes, as a matter of principle for argument, that you and I embrace the truth of the resurrection. And so, as he moves on, he says, Christ is the sufficient intercessor. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You can't go along continuing to use the goats and the calves and the bulls and all that stuff. What are we going to use? Now he's already pointed us to what he's going to use. For Christ has now not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. God is now before God's throne room. Isn't it amazing? I mean, right here, he could have just like snuck in like all of Revelation and all of Isaiah 6 and the glory that surrounds the throne room of God. I mean, like, see, the throne room itself is even better, but he doesn't choose to do that. Why? Because he's simply focused on the greatness of Christ in comparison to all the things we might look at and hold dear. And so he simply focuses on Jesus Christ and he says, Jesus Christ is yours, and he makes intercession for you. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What he's saying is Christ has offered himself as the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice. And he is now in heaven interceding for you and for me. Ultimately, yes, for the sins that we committed when we initially came and we asked for his forgiveness. But even now, as you and I sin and we confess our sins to God, what is true, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? I think it's because Jesus Christ sits in heaven and he intercedes for your sins and he intercedes for my sins. And so he portrays Christ in this current ministry. Unlike the old system, wherein if you had a sin that was an intentional sin, you had a different sacrifice. And if you had unintentional sins that you didn't even know about, you had to continue to offer sacrifices. What is now true? Christ is interceding for your sins and for my sins with one sacrifice that is sufficient for all people for all time. Christ has appeared to intercede for us. 
Christ's death is superior then, and that he only died once. He moves on, and he concludes with this thought. He says, Christ is the sufficient sovereign. Verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Here what he's saying is, there is coming death. Death comes, and when, when death comes, we expect judgment. And yet, Christ has died, Christ has been resurrected, and Christ is seated with the Father in heaven. And he is watching and waiting for those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the text is then once again very clearly directing us towards application, right? Because if we want to be the people who are resurrected and taken back with him when he appears the second time, what is the text looking for in us? The text very clearly states, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Christ is once again returning. Christ is not done making grand appearances on the stage of your history and on my history. Instead, there is coming a final grand moment in which he will come back into human history into the spectrum of time and space he will come appear blow his trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air and so we will ever be with the Lord and that is what he's describing here and so the the pain that you and I experience the, the fears that you and I experience the trials that you and I experience in this life are to pale in comparison to the splendor and the glory of our better minister, Jesus Christ. And so he says, death comes once, then judgment. Believers need not fear death, as Christ will appear again to rescue his own from the curse and difficulty of this world. And the resurrection is what allows all of this to be believable. Because all of this is like almost too good to be true, right? When you consider, you know, that a couple thousand years ago they had to continually go and kill bulls and goats. And it was never even good enough for the high priest. And yet now you and I are promised that Christ's once for all death is sufficient. Why? Because he rose again conquering death and sin. Demonstrating that he has power to crush the pain of sin and death. And that is what makes Resurrection Sunday, that is what makes Easter this time of year so joyful, is that it is what confirms our faith. It is what establishes us and grounds us in our faith. 
It is what gives us courage to continue to move on in the midst of the difficulties and the trials that we will face this coming year. 2021 will be harder than 2020. Don't believe me? Like, turn on your TV. It will be worse. There's aspects that are easier. We're not social distancing. None of us are uh, social distancing to the extent probably that we were a year ago. But there's other aspects with what's happening in government that are difficult, that are frightening. And the point is, we don't find our hope in those things. Rather, we find our hope in the sufficient, all-encompassing ministry that is far better, far superior to the past ministry that believers before us had. And so we find our hope, we find our security, we find our rest and our peace in the sufficient ministry of Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion, I think these are some theological statements that we can make that are grounded in the text. And then I think from there we can, we can say, okay, what does, what does that mean for how we should live our lives this coming week? The old system of laws and covenant was insufficient. That's what verses 1 through 10 say. And yet there are so many people that in one way or another, they want to continually put themselves back under the Old Testament law code. I have family members who, who want to put themselves back under the law. You and I have both encountered people who, who will point to some aspect of the law code and they, they want to embrace that once again. And it's not that there are not good principles there. There are. Some of those principles we ought not to run from. Okay? But we don't put ourselves under the law. Why? Because we have a better system in place now. In addition, the only sufficient sacrifice is the one Christ made. And so, if you're here and maybe you've been thinking, you know, I'm, I'm placing my faith in the fact that I'm in church on Easter Sunday, or maybe I'm placing my faith in the fact that I might put a check in the offering, or maybe I'm placing my faith in some other good aspect about my family, or about me, or something I hope to do someday. The text is saying, look, the high priests, the people that God chose to minister as the pinnacle person for an entire nation, they didn't measure up. They had to offer a whole bowl every year so they could even enter into the most holy place. You will not measure up. And so what you need is what all of us need. It's to realize your sinfulness, to humble yourself and come before the Lord and place your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. Jesus is sufficient to intercede for you before the Father. And therein is found great joy and great peace. Because no matter who you are, in some way this last week, you sinned. Maybe you sinned against a family member. Maybe you sinned against somebody you don't even know. Maybe it was one of those, you know, cashiers at, you know, Aldi or wherever you shop. But we've sinned. And where do you go for intercession before a holy, just God who demands that all sins be punished? 
And in Christ, we have the great intercessor, Jesus Christ, who sits before the Father's throne. And so when we sin, it should challenge us and it should convict us to go to him more quickly, more faithfully, and repent of our sins and to seek forgiveness and to commit our lives once again to follow him in faithfulness and obedience, depending on the means by which he has given us to live lives that are honoring and glorifying to him. His word, his Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the saints, participation in various ministries that we have, through which we are reminded of the, the foundational truth of our faith. The Lord's Supper. Jesus will return and secure the believer's eternal home. And he really points us to the, the application for this one when he says in verse 28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. I don't think what he's saying is, if you're not eagerly waiting for Christ, too bad, you missed it, you know, better luck the second go around. That's not what he's saying. But he is challenging us, he is pushing us, he is motivating us, he is encouraging us to eagerly await for the day when Jesus Christ will return. And that may come you know, in our generation, or that may be a couple more generations away, we don't know. But the point is, as we focus our attention on the glory and the splendor of our great minister, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, all that goes on around us is more bearable. Why? Because we know the end. And so he says, focus on what you know to be true. Focus on Jesus Christ. Eagerly await his return. And as we all do all this, remember, our conscience have been cleaned. Why? So that you and I can pursue faithfulness and obedience and good works. Good works to our neighbors, good works to our family, good works to those we work with, good works to our church family, and so on and so forth. The resurrection message is one of encouragement, it is one of hope. And the ministry of Christ is far better than anything that has come before and will be greater than anything that will come in the future. And so the author of Hebrews calls us to focus our attention on who Jesus Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. And in those ministries, to find delight, to find hope. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have paid a sufficient sacrifice through your son's death. We thank you that you allow your son to sit before you and to make intercession for us. We thank you that one day he will return. We pray that as we await, we would seek to do good works, that we would trust you, and that we would earnestly and eagerly await your return. In your name we pray. Amen.